welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, a podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 8, Mobilis in Mobili. This abduction, so brutally executed, was accomplished with the speed of lightning. My companions and I scarcely had time to realize what had happened. I don't know what their feelings were as they were being dragged down into this floating prison. They felt a cold shiver run through me. Whom did we have to contend with? Doubtless, some new pirates who were exploiting the sea in their own way. As soon as the narrow hatch closed behind me, I was in total darkness. My eyes, which had just become accustomed to the light outside, could see nothing. I felt my naked feet clinging to the rungs of an iron ladder. Ned Lannan can say manhandled in the same way followed me. At the bottom of the ladder, a door opened and immediately closed behind us with a resounding noise. We were alone, but where? I could neither tell nor imagine. All was black, but so pitch black that even after a few minutes, my eyes had not yet managed to see anything but those vague glimmers that one imagined he sees on the darkest of nights. Nevertheless, Ned Land, who was furious at what had happened, was giving full vent to his indignation. "'A thousand devils!' he cried. "'These people must be descendants of the Scots for all the hospitality they offer you. I wouldn't be surprised if they were cannibals, but I can assure you they won't eat me without me having something to say about it.' "'Keep calm, Ned, keep calm,' Kinsey replied quietly. "'You're getting angry before there is any need to. "'We're not in the pot yet.' "'Not in the pot,' replied the Canadian. "'But in the oven, without doubt. "'It's dark enough here. "'Unfortunately, I still have my bowie knife, "'and I can always see well enough to use that. "'The first of those bandits to lay hands on me.' "'Do not get worked up, Ned,' I told the harpooner. "'And do not get us into trouble by being violent, "'because it is useless. "'How do you know they are not listening to us? "'Let us try and find out where we are.' "'I groped my way forward.' After five steps, I came to an iron wall made of riveted plates. Then, turning around, I bumped into a wooden table, near which stood a number of stools. The floor of our prison was covered with a thick layer of matting, which deadened the sound of footsteps. We found no sign of either a door or a window in the walls. Kinsey, walking around the room in the opposite direction, met me, and we came back into the middle of the cabin, which must have been twenty feet long by ten feet wide. As regards its height, Ned Land, although he was very tall, could not touch the ceiling. Half an hour had already passed without any change in the situation when the darkness surrounding us was suddenly changed into a violently bright light. Our prison was suddenly lit up by such a brilliant glare that at first my eyes could scarcely bear it. But its whiteness and its intensity, I realized that it was the same dazzling light that had produced a magnificent phosphorescence around the submarine craft. Involuntarily, I closed my eyes, but when I opened them, I saw that the source of the light was a frosted half-globe set in the ceiling. "'At last we can see!' cried Ned Land, who stood on the alert knife in hand. "'Yes,' I replied, venturing a play on words, but the situation is nonetheless obscure. "'Monsieur must be patient,' said the imperturbable Pensee. The sudden deluge of light in the cabin now enabled me to study in smallest details. It contained nothing but the table and five stools. The invisible door must have been hermetically closed. We listened, but could catch no sound. Everything seemed dead inside the ship. Was it moving? Was it floating on the surface? Or was it diving down into the depths of the sea? I had no idea. 
However, the luminous globe had not been turned on without reason, and I hoped that before long some members of the crew would appear. When one casts someone into a dungeon to forget about him, one doesn't bother to light his prison. I was not mistaken. There was a noise of sliding bolts, a door opened, and two men appeared. One of them was short, muscular, broad-shouldered, and strong-built, with a large head, thick black hair, a thick mustache, and quick, penetrating eyes. His whole person had that southern vivacity that is typical in France of the inhabitants of Provence. Diderot has quite maintained that a man's gestures are metaphorical, and this little man was the living proof of that assertion. One could sense that in his native language his usual manner of speaking would be very colorful, replete with metaphors, dramatic gestures, and suggestive figures of speech. However, I, I could never verify this because in my presence he spoke only in a strange and incomprehensible language. The second stranger merits a more detailed description. A student of Gratiolet or of Engel would have read his features like an open book. Even I could easily determine his predominant characteristics, self-confidence because his head was nobly set on the curve of his shoulders, and his black eyes surveyed the scene with cool self-assurance, serenity because his complexion was pale rather than ruddy, indicating an unusual control of his emotions, energy indicated by the rapid contraction of his eyebrows, courage, because his deep breathing was indicative of an expansive vitality. He was proud, and his firm and calm gaze reflected lofty thoughts. The harmony of his facial expressions and the gestures of his body and countenance to judge him from the standpoint of a physiognomist gave an overall impression of indisputable frankness. In spite of myself, I felt reassured by his presence, and I had reason to believe that our interview would turn out well. Whether he was 35 or 50, I could not tell. He was tall, had a broad forehead, a straight nose, a clearly defined mouth, magnificent teeth, fine tapered hands, which, to use a term employed in palmistry, were eminently psychical. That is to say, worthy to serve a man of passionate sensitivity. He was beyond the shadow of a doubt the most remarkable man I had ever seen. There was something about his eyes that was most unusual they were set rather far from each other, and could encompass almost a quarter of the horizon at a glance. This faculty, which I verified later, was enhanced by a power of vision even greater than that of Ned Land. When this stranger fixed his eyes on an object, the line of his eyebrows contracted, his large eyelids closed around the pupils so as to narrow the span of vision, and then he would gaze. What vision? How well did his vision magnify distant details? How well did the fathom of the very depths of your soul? How well did he pierce through those layers of water so opaque in our eyes, and how well he scrutinized the deepest secrets of the sea. The two strangers wore caps made of sea otter fur, boots of sealskin, and clothes made of a special kind of cloth that fitted loosely and allowed complete freedom of movement. The taller of the two, evidently the captain, scrutinized us with the closest possible attention, without uttering a word. Then turning toward his companion, he spoke to him in a language I could not recognize, was a sonorous, flexible, harmonious tongue, whose vowels seemed to be accentuated in a great variety of ways. The other man would reply with a nod of the head and add one or two utterly incomprehensible words. Then he would look at me as though to ask me a question. I replied in good French that I could not understand his language, but he seemed not to understand, and the situation became somewhat embarrassing. If Monsieur would just tell our story, said Conseil, perhaps these gentlemen would pick up a few words. So I began recounting our adventure, pronouncing all the syllables very clearly, without omitting any details. I gave our names and occupations, and then formally presented Professor Aronnax, 
his servants can say, and Master Ned Land, the harpooner. The man with the soft, calm eyes listened to me quietly, even politely, and with remarkable attention, but nothing in his face indicated that he had understood my story. When I had finished, he said not a word. The only thing left to do appeared to be to speak English. Perhaps we should be able to make ourselves understood in that language, which is more or less universal. I know it because, as I know German well enough to read it fluently, but not well enough to speak it correctly, and the problem here was to make oneself understood. Come on, I said to the harpooner. It's your turn, Master Land. Roll out the best English ever spoken by an Anglo-Saxon and try to do better than I. Ned did not have to be asked a second time and began our tale all over again. I understood him more or less. Fundamentally, the content was the same, although the form differed. The Canadian, carried away by his temperament, made his narrative very animated. He complained vehemently at being imprisoned in violation of human rights, asked by virtue of what law he was being thus detained, invoked the principle of habeas corpus, threatened to prosecute anyone who held him without due cause, ranted, gesticulated, shouted, and finally, by means of expressive signs, made it clear that we were dying of hunger. This, of course, was perfectly true, but we had almost forgotten about that. Much to his amazement, the harpooner did not seem to have been much better understood than I had been. Our visitors did not bat an eye. Evidently, they understood neither language, neither the language of Arago nor that of Faraday. Much perplexed, after having vainly exhausted our philological resources, I did not know what to do. But then Conseil said, If monsieur will permit, I will tell the story in German. What? You know German? I exclaimed. "'Because I'm Flemish, you see, monsieur. "'I hope monsieur doesn't mind. "'On the contrary, my boy, I am very pleased.' "'So Conseil, in his quiet voice, "'related for the third time the various stages of our journey. "'But in spite of his elegant turns of phrases "'and his clear, elegant pronunciation, "'no success was achieved by the German tongue. "'At last, at my wit's end, "'I scratched together everything I could remember "'of my childhood studies and tried to tell our story in Latin. "'True,' Cicero would have stopped up his ears and would have sent me back to the kitchen where I belonged. However, I managed to get to the end, but without any positive results. After this final attempt failed, the two strangers exchanged a few words in their incomprehensible language and withdrew without having made as much as a reassuring gesture in our direction as they might have done in any country in the world, and closed the door behind them. "'This is infamous!' cried Ned, who burst into a rage for the twentieth time. What? We speak French, English, German, and Latin to those impudent fellows, and neither of them has the civility to reply? Calm down, Ned, said to the seething harpooner. Being angry will not get you anywhere. But don't you realize, Professor, our irate companion continued, that one might perfectly well die of hunger in this iron cage? Nonsense, said Conseil philosophically. We can hold out for a long time yet. My friends, I said, we must not give up hope. We have been in more difficult situations than this. Do me the favor of waiting a while before you jump to any conclusions about the captain and his crew of this boat. My mind is already made up, retorted Ned. There are a lot of impudent knaves. All right. From what country? From the land of knavery, of course. My good Ned, that country has not yet been clearly marked on the map, and I must admit that the nationality of these two strangers is most difficult to determine. They are not English or French or German. That's about all I can say. However, I should be tempted to guess that the captain and his mate were born in southern latitudes. There is something southern about them. But whether they are Spaniards, Turks, Arabs, or Indians, I cannot tell from their appearance. 
And as for the language, it's quite incomprehensible. That's the misfortune of not knowing all languages, said Kinsey, or the disadvantages of not having one universal language. And that wouldn't be any good, replied Ned Land. Don't you see that these people have their own language, a language invented to reduce to despair good folk who are asking for their dinner? But in every country in the world, doesn't opening your mouth, working your jaw up and down, and snapping your teeth and lips make any other explanation superfluous? Doesn't that mean the same thing whether you are in Quebec or the Pomatou Islands or in Paris or the Antipodes? Does one have to say, I'm hungry, and give me something to eat? Oh, I don't know, said Kinsey. Some people are so stupid. As he spoke these words, the door opened and a steward entered. He brought us clothes, coats, and seamen's trousers made of a material that I did not know. I hastened to put them on, and my companions followed suit. Meanwhile, the steward, who might well have been deaf and dumb, had laid the table for three. "'That's more like it,' said Kinsey. "'That looks promising.' "'Bah!' grumbled the harpooner. "'What do you imagine they eat here? "'Tortoise liver, fillet of shark, or sea-dog steaks?' "'We shall see,' said Kinsey. "'The dishes covered by silver lids were placed symmetrically on the table, and we sat down. "'Obviously we were dealing with civilized people, "'and except for the flood of electric light in our room, "'I could have imagined myself in the dining-room at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, "'or the Grand Hotel in Paris.' However, I must say that there was neither bread nor wine. The water was fresh and clear, but it was only water which was not to the taste of Ned Land. Among the dishes that were served to us, I recognized various fish, which had been delicately prepared. But with regard to some dishes, I was unable to express any opinion, and I could not have said to which kingdom, vegetable, or animal they belonged. The service at table, however, was elegant and in the best taste. Every implement, spoon, fork, knife, and plate bore a letter encircled by a motto, of which I reproduce here a facsimile, mobilis in immobili. Mobile within the mobile element? What an apt motto for this undersea craft, as long as the preposition in is translated within and not on. The letter in no doubt indicated the initial of the enigmatic personage who was in command of the depths of the sea. Ned and Conseil, however, were not bothering to think about such things. They were wading into their food, and I didn't hesitate to follow their example. Besides, I was now reassured as to our fate, and it seemed obvious to me that our hosts had no intention of letting us die of starvation. Nevertheless, everything on this earth comes to an end sometime, even the hunger of people who have had nothing to eat for fifteen hours. Thus, when our appetites were satisfied, we felt irresistibly sleepy. This was all too natural a reaction after the endless night we had spent fighting against the depths. "'I shall certainly sleep well,' said Kinsey. "'And I'm asleep already,' replied Ned Land. My two companions stretched out on the cabin carpet, and before long were in the deepest slumber. I gave in less easily to the need for sleep. Too many thoughts crowded into my mind, too many insoluble questions presented themselves, too many fantasies danced before my half-closed eyes. Where were we? What strange power swept us in that sea? I felt, or I thought I felt, the craft sinking down into the depths, depths, depths of this ocean. I became obsessed by violent nightmares. In these mysterious regions, I saw a whole world of strange animals in which our underwater craft, like some living, moving, formidable creature, seemed, like them, to have been spawned. Then my mind became calmer. My imagination dissolved into a vague somnolence and very soon I fell into a gloomy slumber. Questions to consider after reading. Ned has an issue with his temper. 
Will it get him into trouble? What nationality do you think the crew are? Do you enjoy eating fish? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.